Welcome to Calibrate Conversations, a podcast about embracing God's standard for sexuality. I'm your host, Brady Cohn, and joining me today is our guest, Dr. Peter Gaiman. Dr. Gaiman, you are a professor at Shepherd's Theological Seminary in North Carolina, and we would love to hear more about that. Uh, I met you about seven years ago in Israel on a seminary trip, and so that was a great trip, and now I've seen you doing some great work at Shepherd's. Your students love you. You uh, mostly teach on the Old Testament, and so today you are going to provide some in-depth analysis of some Old Testament passages that are far beyond what I'm usually able to provide. And so we're excited to dig in and examine what are some of the lies our culture believes about some of these passages? What is God's truth? What is he communicating? And how can we be sure of what God is you know, talking about with sexuality? Because it's such a hot button issue in our culture. And our culture wants to twist these issues. They want to twist these verses versus wants to, you know, uh, twist in a way that, oh, that doesn't apply today, or, you know, that's just some book written by man, and we want to be able to stand on the truth of God's Word. So I'm so welcome, and thank you for being with us. Oh, Brady, it's a pleasure to be here. Really appreciate what you're doing. I've watched a lot of your videos, and I'm just thrilled to be able to be with you. Thank you so much. So tell us a little bit about Shepherds. First of all, because I always forget the things that should be said at the end. And so before we do that, tell us a little bit about Shepherds. What called you here? What opportunity do people have to study God's Word here? Yeah, well, as you mentioned, and I appreciate the opportunity to say this, as you mentioned, I work at Shepherds Theological Seminary located in Cary, North Carolina, which is a suburb just outside of Raleigh. And my wife and I moved here with our five-month-old son in 2017. And, you know, fast forward now, we have four kids, you know, been here, loving it. So the thing that makes Shepherd's Theological Seminary special to us, and I think to those who know the school, and I think you could attest to this as well, is just the, not just the, the heart to teach God's Word to people, but to also see it applied by the people. And so Shepherd's Theological Seminary has has been a great experience for me just as a teacher, and I hope for students as well. But uh, getting able to, being able to see students learn, you know, not not just the academic side of things, which is important, and that's kind of what we're going to be talking about today a little bit too. On the academic side of things, there are important arguments talking about how Hebrew works, how to understand Old Testament background, all those things are important, but then even more so, how, how do we live a life uh, faithful to Christ? And really, that's what it's all about. And so I'm thankful to serve at a school where that is front and center. Absolutely. And I so much appreciated my time at Shepherds, where it wasn't just academic, it was applying it to my own heart, my own life. And so usually it's one or the other, it seems, but we need to truly understand God's Word if we're going to apply it in a way that uh, God would have us. That's right. So your, I, I believe your dissertation was on homosexuality. And so you have dug into these issues, you know, at a depth that most people never have. And so you are confident in what God's Word says. One of the lies our culture believes right now is that the word homosexual was never in the Bible until 1946. There was just a documentary that came out on that a few weeks ago. I, I already did a podcast episode on that, but uh, you can dig into it deeper than I, I was able to. And so our culture is so determined to try to... Um, dismiss what the Bible says, and they're desperate. And I see that desperation coming, obviously, from a place of hard-heartedness. They are desperate because they want to justify where they're at. They want to justify their sin. But let's let's 
examine where did this, you know, misconception come from that the the word homosexual wasn't in the Bible. The Bible doesn't talk about homosexuality as we practice it today. They'll try to dismiss it as saying it's talking about pedophilia, rape, incest, all these other issues, but it's not talking about homosexuality. Right. Yeah. And that's such a great question. Uh, and I think a lot of people resonate with that. In fact, the my funny story uh, for this, I suppose, was that mm. I wrote a blog article on this issue, and and I think you've you've seen it before. But one of one of the things that happened as I was at church one day, and I got home, and I got a notification on my phone saying, you know, you are experiencing much more traffic than normal lately. So I'm like, what's going on? So I looked, and somebody had posted my blog article on like the front page of Reddit or something mm -hmm. like that, and it exploded for about 30 minutes. And then my website got banned from Reddit. So uh, <laughs> it's like, uh, so uh, the point is, though, that people were were really hungry to see what does this have to say? You know, like what, because this is an argument I hear a lot, and I'm sure you hear it a lot, too. But, and this is the professor in me, okay? So again, mm -hmm. I'm, we're already putting That's on the professor side. For. Yeah. That's what we're here for. Yeah, I, and I, I think it just because we're going into the details doesn't mean that it can't be, it can't be simple to understand. And that's that's my goal is to try to make it a little simple. And one of the first things we need to understand foundationally is the idea of translation philosophy. And that sounds like a scary term, but it's really not. Basically, the point is that the Bible, and I think most of the people who are watching this would understand that the Bible was not written in English. I mean, that that's it's written in Greek, it's written in Hebrew, a little bit in Aramaic. So it's written in a foreign language. And anybody who knows multiple languages understands that the translation process is always a balancing act of getting the point across as it was in the original language into uh, the target language. And just, I mean, the easiest way to see this, Brady, would just be picking up a 1611 King James Bible, which, you know, you, you'll read passages in there, and this is English, but it's old English, right? And you, you read words and you say, okay, I have no idea what that means because the English language has changed, right? And so when people say, for example, that homosexuality was not in the Bible until 1946, a lot of times it comes out of this, this idea of conspiracy theory, like the Bible wasn't um, against homosexuality until there were some, some errant Bible translators who were perverting and twisting scripture. And they had a so. political motive. Exactly. Hear a lot. Yeah, exactly. And we can, and I'm not even against examining that. We can, we can look at the data and I think the data would justify what's going on. But I think just even behind the scenes, you need to understand that uh, languages change over time. And just because a word isn't used, that, that really doesn't matter to this issue at all. The issue is whether, what does the Bible say about homosexuality and same-sex behavior? It's not whether a word itself is used. And that's where I think, and again, uh, loving my time at Shepherd's Theological Seminary, I'm so so grateful I get to teach uh, Hebrew, I get to teach Greek, and it's one of those aspects where you, you're teaching the students, it doesn't matter what, now, I'm going to say something, I'm going to take it back, okay? Mm -hmm. I say, it doesn't matter what the English says. Now, we have good translations, I'm not, not, I'm not knocking that, but God didn't inspire English, he inspired Greek and Hebrew, and what is the meaning behind that? And so you can actually do, you can do the research into those words. And, and that's where the debate ultimately gets focused then. That's why I think it's such a, a red herring of sorts where you say, oh, homosexuality as a, as a word did not exist in the Bible prior to a certain time. That really has no 
uh, bearing on the conversation at all because we refer to things differently all the time. You could use the same way to say uh, gay is not a word that's used in the Bible at all. Well, does that really matter? I mean, I mean, most people would be aware that that gay as a reference to um, homosexuality, uh, to same-sex uh, attraction or to participation, that is a rather recent innovation of the language. And so when you think of how terms uh, take on their meaning, okay, that's that's a separate discussion. But as we're talking about the, this idea of does is the Bible against homosexuality, you have to go to the definitional passages, you know, Leviticus 18, uh, 22, 20, 13, you know, male should not lie with another male. Romans 1 talks about how uh, males with males and females with females is an evidence of a rebellion against the Creator God. Uh, Rome, or 1 Corinthians 6, 9 talks about how you have uh, those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. It uses the word there that actually is founded on Leviticus 18 and 20. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of people don't don't recognize that, and we can go into more detail on that um, now or later, but the, the issue is that almost everybody acknowledges that the Bible is an interconnected document where you have the Apostle Paul, for example, uh, being very cognizant of and relying on the Old Testament forming his definition. I'll give you an example, and, and just because I think this is helpful to see some people that are, um, you know, just very open about this. Bernadette Bruton, who's a, uh, you know, feminist, uh, lesbian scholar, you know, and it always boggles my mind how, how you know, certain people get into Bible study, you know, but mm -hmm. she's, she's a lesbian who's writing commentaries on Romans. And I have a quote in my dissertation from her just because I thought it was so helpful as she, she noted this. She said, in essence, Paul is completely reliant on Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20 here in Romans 1, and he's, he's using that as a definition to say that same-sex uh, behavior is, you know, an abomination. It, not, it is not to be practiced. It's against the creational mandate. And then, but being from her presuppositions and, and her way of viewing things, she just says, Paul's wrong. Yeah, and she can she can do that from her presupposition, mm -hmm. right? But but somebody like myself and like yourself would say, no, the Bible's our th our authority, and Paul is speaking on behalf of Christ. You know, when when he says this is not what we're to be doing, you know, he speaks with authority with regard yes. to that. And many times, I've encouraged Christians and churches as they're trying to have these conversations with people, you have to look at the bigger picture of what does this person believe about the Bible? What do they believe about? You know, the source of God's word, the authority it has in our life, because we tend to sometimes we'll argue over this one verse. It's like, well, that person doesn't believe that God's word is inerrant and has authority and that all of scripture was, you know, God breathed by, by God for us and has the same authority, whether it's the words of Jesus or, you know, the words he gave to Paul. And so many times we have to look at the bigger picture. It's like, well, I can't argue with this person about this verse when they believe that it doesn't matter what Paul wrote exactly. because Paul's just wrong. They need to understand all of scripture and have the same hermeneutics and the same understanding of how we interpret scripture if they're going to accept then my interpretation of scripture. Exactly. And I would say on that same note, it, it amazed me at least, because and and you mentioned that I did my dissertation on homosexuality in the Old Testament and how all those things related. And I focused specifically on Leviticus and how Leviticus impacted Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 6, kind of like I was talking about. And one of the things that just blew my mind was how many people who claim to be Christians, who, who operated in this 
in this worldview and, and lifestyle of we're going to claim that the Bible's authoritative, but we're going to twist certain things. And one of the arguments I, I often saw was that the Old Testament shouldn't be a part of the discussion because because it's it's not imbibed with the love ethic that Jesus mm. came to give us, yes. right? And and I think that that's the that's already the wrong foot if you're if you're going down the road and you're you're trying to say, well, we're going to use a presupposition of our definition of love or something like that and reject what God revealed. And I think special revelation always needs to have the priority in determining ethic. At Calibrate Ministries, we have an entire ministry just for parents of LGBTQ kids because we want to be able to shepherd your hearts and encourage you and pray for you and your family as you navigate these situations. So just go to CalibrateMinistries.com and fill out the contact form, and I'd love to be in touch with you about how you can be involved in that ministry. Absolutely. That's that's a great thought. And I see people, even Christians that I think would know better, dismiss the Old Testament saying, well, we're under the New Covenant now, so none of the Old Testament law applies. And so they obviously don't understand the different aspects of the Old Testament. So why don't we talk about that a little bit? Because I also see then the non-believers make comments. I just seen this yesterday on one of my videos. Like, well, I if you're going by the Old Testament, I hope you're not eating shellfish exactly. and wearing a shirt with mixed fibers. And so how do you respond to people who make comments like that, who obviously just don't understand? How do you spell out what do we take from the Old Testament in our application today? Because we believe all of Scripture is authoritative, God-breathed, used for correction, for teaching, as it says in Timothy. And so... Give us a very basic, talk to us like we're kindergartners on how can we rely on the Old Testament to inform our morality and what God expects of us when some of that is Old Testament law that doesn't actually apply to our day-to-day life. Right. Yeah, you know, that's a great question. And I've done um, quite a bit on this just because it it impacts so much. Obviously, in this issue, it's front and center. But everybody deals with this issue because everyone wants to know, how do I apply the Old Testament law? There's a lot to it. And I'll tell you... As a preface before my advice, I would give what I think is is perhaps a distraction. And a lot of times if, if you ask this question, and, and I think I've done this in the past, and, and it wouldn't surprise me if, if many of the viewers have, have thought of it in this terms, in the terms of the law can be divided into moral, civil, and ceremonial, yes. and we're just going to take the moral laws. And... Okay, I'm not going to say that that's that's flat out 100% wrong, but I I think it's unhelpful in the sense that it's always a retroactive grid and and the real burden of proof is on how to determine whether something's moral, civil or, or ceremonial to begin with. And that can be difficult because sometimes you're you're saying, "Okay, well, maybe if there's a death penalty attached to it, that's moral." But then there are some weird laws that that the death penalty is attached to, like observing the Sabbath and things like that. So uh, the New Testament very clearly says that we aren't obligated to observe that. So I think that that categorization breaks down overall. Yes. And I appreciate that. I want to hear what you have to say, because I've used that categorization. And at times I've used it hesitantly because like, man, I don't know if this is the best way to break this down. But in the three minutes I have, right, maybe that's the best I can do right now. Yeah, exactly. And I think, like I said, I've used it in the past before. And I think a lot of people default to that. But the issue is that there's always a little bit, I like the way you said that, there's always a little bit of discomfort because in in some sense, 
it it describes what you're doing, but it didn't really give you insight on how to do it necessarily. Um, and so that's why I always say it's retroactive in the sense that, yeah, you can explain it by doing that. That's where it still has some usefulness. But at the same time, it, by telling somebody, oh, you just follow the moral, civil, or ceremonial, or you follow the moral and then the civil and ceremonial don't impact. But then, like I said, there are some laws where uh, it doesn't really fit neatly into the category. Like the Sabbath, it seems to be a moral law, but then it obviously is a is a civil or ceremonial law as well, given the fact that it's governing Israel's society and their calendar. And so I think the better way uh, is to understand how laws are reflections of creation itself. Mm -hmm. And so the way that I, I typically try to explain this is that laws are multifaceted in their function. And the first primary question you need to ask is what is the function of this law and what is the, what is its relationship to creation, if any? Now, some, some laws are actually more so related to Israel's relationship with the nations. For example, I would say dietary laws are mainly geared toward the avenue of fellowship. So uh, one of the ways that Israel can be incubated and preserved as a nation without you know assimilating into the other peoples is their strict dietary restrictions. And, and there's nothing in the first chapters of Genesis about, you know, needing to have a strict, uh, you know, animal diet with uh, forbidding certain animals or anything like that. The, the most you get in Genesis is that God says, I've created every um, green thing for you to eat. And then in Genesis 9, he says, now you can eat any animal. But nothing, uh, nothing as strict as what you see in the Levitical Code or in Deuteronomy. And so you can look at that and look back at creation and say, no, there's no connection there. And so this has to be a, a uh, cultural aspect of Israel's existence within there. But then you can look at other laws, for example, uh, laws against adultery. And you look at the laws against adultery. Is there any relevance? To, is, is this, does this still have any uh, relevance to today? Well, why is it given? It's to preserve the marriage relationship. It's to reflect something. Looking back, you see some you know, neon lights flashing in Genesis 2 about God's design for marriage, about how God has instituted that as one man, one woman together for their life. And you say, okay, wait a second. And even within Genesis 2, you have uh, the narrator telling you, either God or Moses, that for this reason, man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. So Moses himself is taking that narrative as a prescription, saying this is why we do what we do in marriage. And so within creation, there's actually built in this, this sexuality expectation of marriage being the focus. And that's why—now let me go off on a tangent here for a second—that's why so many people— uh, want to attack the first couple chapters of Genesis, right? Whether it be creation or or other aspects, because so much of it go. I, I would I would argue, and this was a big part of my dissertation. I would argue that one's sexual ethics is founded in creation. Ultimately, it has to be. Otherwise, otherwise you are just picking and choosing uh, culturally how to respond. Yes. And so when I look at that. You know, how do we determine which laws apply? And, and you look at Leviticus, for example, a lot of people say, okay, I don't know which ones apply. You're, you're doing that, that, you know, kind of connecting the dots game. And you say, okay, instead of just saying, okay, I think this is moral, I think this is civil, whatever, you just say, okay, is there a connection here to creation? And actually, you can find connections all over the place. You know, the, the commands to have no other gods before Yahweh. I mean, that's obviously because God is the creator who created all things. There's nothing, you know, the creation story itself is to magnify the creator God. You have even the idea of God giving man work to work in the garden, which in and of itself relates to the prohibitions against stealing and theft. 
So you can start to say, okay, there are certain laws that are founded on very intrinsic creational realities. And so that's how I typically try to explain it is it's not wrong to, I don't think anybody's in sin to use the categories of moral, civil, and ceremonial, but the I guess the, the paradigm for how we determine those categories is better situated looking back to creation and using it as a lens saying, okay, I see the connection between these laws to creation and kind of filtering it that way. Absolutely. That's a great word, and I appreciate that so much. I've always said that if you take out what they call the clobber passages, you know, about the six passages in the Bible that talk about homosexuality, I think you'd still have a very strong case against homosexuality based on creation and what God created marriage and the purposes of it and the purposes of relationships. I think that's a hard conversation in our culture because some of the same idolatry and misuse of sexuality that is expressed in homosexuality is sometimes expressed in heterosexuality of this is just all about me and how I feel and this person makes me happy right now and it becomes a mess. And so it's hard then to, uh, you know, go back to creation and we just have to give people a bigger picture perspective on that. It's like, well, we all need repentance in some way. And we, as the church need to walk in repentance and look at what did God create marriage for and how are we misusing that? Even if it's in a heterosexual context, uh, you know, and we see that obviously where that's gotten our culture with pornography and Mm -hmm. sex outside of marriage and cohabitation and so many areas where we're misusing sexuality. So we need to look at the big picture purpose. Not that I want to undermine those clobber passages because they're, they're so important, but uh, looking at a big, bigger picture of creation, I think gets us a little further down the road and making that case. Well, that's such a good point. And I want to jump in there and say, say it this way too, just completely um, complimenting what you said, because in my Old Testament studies classes, one of the things that were were typically, uh, I, I'm always trying to push the students toward is remembering that when the Bible opens up in the positive presentation of what God is doing, it says, in the beginning, God, and then it talks about what he did. And, you know, I think for, and this was true of me, when I took my first Old Testament class, I realized, wait a second, so the Bible is a story about God, not a story about us or how to live our best life or how to how to please ourselves or it's and it ironically perhaps and you know I just think this is so important for people is that the greatest happiness we experience in life is not when we pursue our own desires and and our own a will for our life, but when we situate ourselves in how God designed us to live. And so it's so important to really just push that positive presentation too, is that it's not just about, like you're saying, the clobber passages, it's about understanding a framework that we, we understand God is the creator, we are the creature, and we situate ourselves, we submit ourselves under that paradigm. Absolutely. And I see a lot of times like parents of someone who's struggling or people in the church who on the surface have the right theology, don't actually believe at the heart level that someone can change how they're living or they should change how they're living. And I hear the excuse all the time. It's like, well, I just want this person to be happy. And because they're in a heterosexual marriage that makes them happy. And so I just, I don't want to deny that to this person over here too. It's like, oh, we need such a bigger picture right. of creation and sexuality 
than our our world is providing us with. And many times that's fled into the church also. Yeah. And I'd actually say, you know, I hear that a lot too. And one of the things that I've been, you know, I go back to Leviticus, where in Leviticus 19, it actually says, um, uh, do not hate your brother, but reprove him or rebuke him. Depend- different translations translate that differently. But the point is that if you if you hate your brother, you won't reprove their sin. Mm. Because and and a lot of people are shocked by that, saying yes. like, "Wait a second! So hatred is equivalent with just letting them live in sin." And it's like, yeah, that that is what the Bible says. Because they're going to suffer punishment right. because of that. Exactly. Wow. Exactly. An argument I hear from a lot of. Uh, non-believers or people trying to twist scripture is that, well, the Old Testament is marriage and sexuality is such a mess too. And one of those aspects I hear is that, well, I think God, you know, God's okay with polygamy. Like he provided all these wives to, you know, King Solomon and, you know, there's so much polygamy and women were treated as property of like, Mm -hmm. oh, go conquer this land and take the women as your wives. And so they they tend to focus on that and then use that to dismiss God's standard for sexuality of one man and one woman for a lifetime because it's like, well, it seems like in the Old Testament, anything goes. And so how would you respond to comments and questions like that? Yeah, well— I think it's a it's a valid question. I, I invite questions like that because that that's a that's a good analytical reading of the text saying, hey, there is there is polygamy in the Bible. So how should we think about that? And I guess I would say two ways because or, or I have two major thoughts on that because not everyone would agree with my ultimate assessment because spoiler alert, I actually don't think the Bible ever approves of polygamy. But let's just say somebody and i have friends uh, even colleagues at other seminaries who who would say well god allowed polygamy it was never his ideal but he allowed it it wasn't sin until he um uh made laws against it you know in the new testament especially uh speaking against that and okay one of the things that we need to recognize is just that there there is a difference in polygamy um which contrasts to some of the you know, same-sex marriage and things like that of, of today, because you still have a creational understanding of the fact that men and women are to create a family, they are to be joined together in marriage. So, so there's a qualitative yes. difference, absolutely. But even irrespective of that, I think if you examine what Scripture has to say about polygamy, there's no positive uh, instruction about it. In fact, everything you see is negative. The first introduction we have of polygamy in the Bible is Lamech in Genesis 4, and it is not a good thing. If you remember Lamech, or depending on how you say it, I'm, I'm used to my Hebrew in my head, so I say Lamech, but I think a lot of people say Lamech. And one of the things that uh, he's known for is, you know, killing a young boy who struck him, right? And that's part of his, his poem there in Genesis 4 is, you know, I wounded uh, a boy for striking me, you know, I killed him. And it's it's one of those things where you're like, ah, that's that's not really a positive thing. Yeah, that's and he's pretty he, harsh. Yeah, exactly. And he's he's uh, the first one we see that he has uh, two wives, and he's talking to him as he's going through that. And so I think that, uh, and this observation isn't unique to me. Walt Kaiser in his Old Testament ethics books ha- has a section on that where there seems to be something there where as as the Bible is zeroing in on this individual who kind of encapsulates Cain's line of rebellion against God, one of the descriptions about him, which is intentional, is the fact that he has multiple wives. And that seems to be an intentional, you know, deviation in rebellion against God. And if you even go on from there, there's actually not 
a lot of people who are described as polygamists in the Bible, they are they are usually kings, in fact, I or or king like, and I can't really think of exceptions to that. Like, mm, yeah, and yeah. It, it does seem that in in those cases, uh, you have individuals who are especially in who are kings. They are they are actually deviating from God's revealed standard. I mean, even though there's not a not a direct prohibition against polygamy in the Bible. That's what a lot of people are looking for in the Old Testament, I should say. Uh, what you see is in Deuteronomy 17, you have the law of the king in verses 14 to 20, where it says a king shall not multiply wives. Well, what do you see in the Old Testament all the time is all these kings are multiplying wives. Yes. It's like, well, did they miss the lesson there? And I think it just shows the hard-heartedness of man. And it shouldn't be a surprise to us where God gives clear instruction like that, and yet the kings are disregarding that. Yeah. And you say the destruction that happened to Israel. Exactly. As, you know, rebellion from the people and their, their leaders. Yeah. So one of my favorite uh, quirks from Dr. Bookman, um, one of our professors who you obviously work with, and we all love Dr. Bookman, is that he says that, you know, King Solomon, he had... 300 wives and 700 concubines. So his two great loves were women and round numbers. Yep. <laughs> and so I, I always remember Dr. Bookman saying that. Oh, yeah. No, he's got he's got a lot of great sayings there. Yeah. And, and one of the things that, you know, even going with Solomon, for example, is the text explicitly says that the marriages to all these women was what drew his heart away to idolatry and the gods that they worshipped. And so I would be hard-pressed to see any example in Scripture where having multiple wives did not lead to complications and problems. I mean, it's just yes. ev everywhere, descriptively. And now, so, so just from, from Scripture itself, like the definition of marriage in Genesis 2 is one man and one woman, and then you have the first deviation of that in the, the rebellious line of Cain, and then you have the, the, the descriptions of polygamy throughout the Old Testament seem to be filled with problems and plagued with problems. And just as a reminder on that, the Old Testament isn't obligated to tell us every time that that somebody does something, whether it's wrong or right. Yes. It, it allows us to draw the conclusions. And I think just the, the consequences of what they go through often dictate, yeah, that was, that was wrong. And so I guess the, the last piece of evidence on that would be uh, some people say, well, listen, there, was, there were laws on the books which said if a man has two wives. And so that seems to indicate that they, they approved of that. But, and this is something that's important with regard to Old Testament law, is that not all law is intended to provide, uh, it's not intended to provide authoritative, uh, this is right and you should aim for this. For example, the laws on manslaughter, you know, if... Somebody mm -hmm. slaughters another man, you know, this is what's supposed to, but it's not saying this is what you should do. And so I think that those are, uh, the way I like to say it is that some of the laws are, are built or designed to, to, I guess, curtail the, the wrongful effects of sin. Yes. And so I think that's a helpful way to I, think of it. I think we see that with divorce too. Exactly. Because the, the law has, you know, methods of, if someone gets divorced, give your Give your wife a certificate of divorce, and it's actually protecting women mm -hmm. and uh, understanding that this is reality of the culture. So let's let's protect women the best we can, given men's sinfulness. Mm -hmm. And so I I appreciate that, but then what I see people twisting that in a way with homosexuality will say it's like, well, God understood that the the you know. Maybe ideal wasn't always going to happen, so he gave provisions 
for, you know, to how to live in a healthy way when the ideal is lacking. So maybe we can, you know, accept homosexuality and same-sex marriage. It might not be ideal, but maybe it's it's the provision for this is just reality of where people are at. And I think that's a little bit of the attitude of like Andy Stanley, as we've seen him go down this road he has of, well, this is just where people are at. And so we will help them live in that way in a, as healthy of a way as we can. And it's obviously misconstruing scripture and trying to come up with a justification, but yeah, I, I people see those Old Testament laws on divorce and you no know, polygamy and think that well then the Bible's okay with it and just because it's describing it doesn't mean that's the it's prescriptive in that way. I have pastors and church leaders regularly reach out to me about speaking at their churches and events. If that's something you would be interested in, feel free to go to calibrateministries.com and fill out the contact form, and I'd love to talk to you about what that would look like. Right. Yeah, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. I think that a lot of times uh, the, the phrase that you mentioned is exactly what to say is just because a narrative describes something a certain way doesn't mean it's prescriptive. And uh, one of the things I tell my Old Testament students all the time is you have to be a discerning reader because so, a lot of times the narrators, as they're recording the events under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they're assuming that you know your Bible and that you're able mm -hmm. to evaluate this and say, he messed up there or he's doing what's wrong. Yes, that's that's a great snippet right there is that they assume that you are going to interpret this and understand this through the lens of the truth that's already been revealed, which we should all know and we all have access to. Exactly. That is great. Uh, Peter, we are going to be running out of time here. Um, do you have any other big thoughts as you navigate sexuality with the scripture on how just the world is getting it wrong? And what's, what are, do you have any big thoughts on how we can recalibrate ourselves and recalibrate our understanding and be at peace about what God says and stand on that truth? You know, I'm so glad you asked, uh, Brady. This is, I think this is near and dear to my heart, and I know it is for yours as well. And we kind of touched on it a little earlier, but just to s say in completely concrete terms, the, the goal of the Christian life revolves around dying to self. And... Sure, there are certain people who struggle with same-sex attraction or who struggle with their identity, and and we can empathize with that, sympathize, and we can we can talk about those issues. But really, the the goal for any individual and the responsibility for any individual is the same, and that's yes. we die to self. And one of my favorite passages is Luke fourteen, where when Jesus is is talking to everyone about discipleship, he says, uh, if if anyone were to come after me, he must hate his father and mother and brother and sister. He must hate his own life. He must take up his cross and follow me. Hey, but me. I thought that Jesus didn't teach us to hate. That's what the Super Bowl said. I know, I said. know. It's it's a shock to <laughs> yes. some people unless you actually read the Bible. You know, it's and but that's the reality is that this is the call for the Christian life. It's not it's not to find uh, fulfillment in adding Jesus to your life and and whatever. It's it's to die to self and. I can speak experientially for myself, but I can also speak experientially for many of my brothers and sisters where a lot of our struggles that we're dealing with, they don't just magically disappear, but it becomes so much more manageable and, and it fits into our, it, 
it really just fits when you understand that my goal, my primary goal in life is to serve the Lord. It's to be his disciple. And, you know, it's, uh, there, there's, there's an old, uh, um, a prayer book, like the, the Puritans had this Valley of Vision. I think you, you've heard of it before. Maybe some of the viewers have heard of it. And one of the, one of the prayers within that book, I love it. Uh, it says, you know, teach me that the way, that the way up is down and the way to life is to die. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, that's so good, right? Yes. And so it's so contrary to our is. world and what our, our world thinks where we'll find life. Yeah. And so I know people are looking for answers and and my go-to for any issue, especially these issues of sexuality and, and just thinking about our personal identity, is that you will find the fullest joy in your identity if you if you can truly say my life doesn't matter all that matters is what christ wants absolutely and you know one aspect i shared in my story a lot is christ giving me this eternal perspective on we have jesus for an eternity and that should give us so much hope and it makes what the world says that we need right now seem so foolish when we have jesus for an eternity amen all right, Dr. Gaiman, thank you so much. I think that's a great place to end it. We so much appreciate your time and your wisdom and your knowledge. How can people connect with your podcast? Do you have a really great podcast that's a great resource to digging into what the Bible says? T- tell us about that. Well, I appreciate you uh, asking about that, Brady. So my podcast and YouTube channel is The Bible Sojourner. People can f- just search me and find me there. Um, on Twitter, I'm just Peter Gaiman, uh, and you can find me uh, cool. there as well. well. We'll link those things okay, in the perfect. description of the video. Thank you. Yeah. And I love I love doing uh, episodes on like a broad spectrum of biblical issues and, and cultural. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm just, I, I don't do as, I probably don't do as well a job as you do in talking about these issues. So I appreciate that, but um, hopefully I'm hitting some other things as well. So. Absolutely. All right. Thank you so much for joining us on Calibrate Conversations. Make sure you check out CalibrateMinistries.com for more resources, podcast episodes, find out how you can support the ministry. We appreciate you listening and we will see you next week.